This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters who are working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hello, I'm Marianne Hitt. And I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, we're going to talk about how to keep moving forward on climate in these crazy times, including how to better do our work at the intersection of civil rights and climate change. We talk with one of the smartest, most strategic people I know, Rashad Robinson, Executive Director of Color of Change, about building people power, how no one is on the sidelines anymore in the Trump era, and how to keep winning victories. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. Marianne, how are you doing? Anna Jane, it's so nice to hear your voice. Uh, we are still excited to bring our listeners an episode from the People's Climate March, but uh, that's not what we have this week, although I still miss being there, being with you. I know, that was so much fun. I love talking to everyone, including listeners who are not just our friends, which is super exciting. <laughs> Turns out there's lots of folks out there listening to the podcast and marching. So thanks to people who are doing both. Yes. Thank you. And we are looking forward to bringing you that episode. But uh, we've got another great one today with an incredibly inspiring friend. But before we get into the interview, I wanted to share some good news that I think is uh, some bigger implications too for our listeners, which is we actually had our first I would say, big climate victory in Washington. Uh, just a few days ago, there was a measure in the Senate to roll back these standards for methane pollution coming from oil and gas drilling on federal lands owned by the Bureau of Land Management. Oh, so, and, so many wonky terms. What does that mean exactly? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's already so wonky. Well, methane is a far more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, although it is shorter lived in the atmosphere. But uh, it's very powerful greenhouse gas. And when you drill for oil and gas, it gets released. And so there are these very common sense measures for when there's oil and gas drilling on Federal lands owned by all Americans have uh, had to control those emissions. And shockingly, the oil and gas industry did not want those standards in place. Surprise, surprise. And so, yes, and they were they were finished in the last six months of the Obama presidency. So there was a little window in which the Senate could more easily roll them back. And they tried to do that uh, right before the clock ran out. They had a vote on the floor of the Senate. They knew it was going to be close because uh, there are only you know, just over the, the margin of 50 votes in the Republican Party. Vice President Mike Pence actually came over to the Capitol to break the tie. They were mm. anticipating a tie. So he drove over from the White House to the Capitol to break the tie. And there was no tie to break because... We won! We won! God, <laughs> we, had, that. we had three Republicans uh, that voted uh, with the with the planet. Uh, McCain from Arizona, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, and Collins from Maine. And then all of the Democrats stuck together, including... Uh, Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota and Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who sometimes do vote with the fossil fuel interests. And so we won and there was not even a tie for Mike Pence to break. And Nate Silver um, from 538 uh, tweeted that it was the first loss for Trump in the Congress on Thank God. anything. Yeah. 
and it was on climate and it was on an environmental issue. So, and I think that's just so indicative that people like we all actually care. Indeed. And it's not always partisan. Mm-hmm. And we had tens of thousands of people from the Sierra Club. So thanks to everyone out there, whether you're a part of the Sierra Club or some other organization that called and went to town hall meetings and uh, texted and and wrote and did all those things we're always asking you to do. Uh, it worked. It matters. And this is a great breakthrough, I think, for uh, make a show of strength on climate and the environment and also a show that these these issues are bipartisan and that uh, just a clear sign that Trump isn't going to win every time uh, when it comes to climate and the environment. And I think it's a great uh, a great moment also to kind of kick off this episode because we have such a great conversation with my friend Rashad Robinson, who is one of the most brilliant people in the progressive movement. He runs this group called Color of Change that has been doing groundbreaking work on racial justice and civil rights. Um, he's been written up in, you know, everything from Wired Magazine to Fast Company is one of the most innovative social change leaders alive today. And uh, and he has got some great insight for us about what it's going to take to win and to keep winning in this era when our opposition has c- clearly come together and is pushing very hard on their agenda and what it's going to take for us to win. I'm really excited for folks to hear the interview. And I think Having this victory and a little bit of wind at our back now in the Congress uh, is all the more reason to listen to some of this wisdom about how to keep moving forward. Yeah, he's absolutely brilliant. Like I, I really, like really loved like just what like hearing how how he thinks about like how do we build power, how do we build frameworks that are actually winnable, and you know it's it's a it's a like a, it's an important and and difficult discussion because a lot of it is around race. You know, he runs Color of Change which as we you know know is one of the most impressive groups doing racial justice work and there is this deep connection to racial justice and climate change which he points out a few times so this is some of the most important work we can be doing most important stuff we can be talking about and we are going to continue that conversation next uh, this interview Anna Jane was not able to be with us but Rashad and I were both in New Orleans at a conference that I put together where he kindly came in as one of our plenary speakers and we stepped out for an interview afterwards and I'm so excited to share that with you all. So let's go now to our interview with Rashad Robinson. But first, listen to this. Hi, my name is Donna and I live in Pensacola, Florida. This is your dinner party climate fact for today. Americans cut their beef consumption by 19% between 2005 and 2014, the equivalent of taking 39 million cars off the road. Well, I am here today in beautiful city of New Orleans with my dear friend Rashad Robinson, who runs Color of Change. And I have snagged him for a few minutes from his very busy life, uh, jet-setting around as a inspiring civil rights leader to talk with us about this moment that we're in and civil rights at climate change and, and how we all move forward together in these, in these uncertain times. So hi, Rashad. Hey, it's great to be with you. So, Rashad, for folks who don't know much about Color of Change, can you just give a quick snapshot of what you do? You've been heralded by Fast Company, 
uh, Wired Magazine as one of the most innovative leaders uh, in the progressive movement today. Uh, so tell folks just a little bit about what you do. Color of Change is a racial justice organization that works every single day to build campaigns that challenge the policies and practices that hold Black people back and champion the solutions that move all of us forward. And how we do that from like a really clear operational perspective is that we have a membership of over 1.2 million Black folks and their allies of every race. And each and every day we're identifying these moments in the world, whether it be issues with corporations or media and government. And we're giving people meaningful ways to respond, to respond to the injustice around them, and then to build energy through campaign work, and then turn that energy into systemic change over time and scale people's participation both online and offline with this fundamental idea of taking the presence that Black people have in the world and channeling it to um, building the type of power that makes real change. And uh, I think it's fitting that we are both uh, here in New Orleans. We're having a big conference of bunch of beyond coal advocates from all over the country, but uh, this is a city that helped Color of Change get its start, right? And and maybe yeah. uh, kind of brings home that connection between civil rights and racial justice and climate change. Absolutely. And for us, the, the, the issue of presence to power. So 11 years ago, we were founded in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, which was a flood that was caused by bad decision makers that turned into a life-altering disaster by some of those same bad decision makers. And those images that many people um, that are listening probably remember of Black people on their roofs demanding the government do something, and they were in so many ways left to die. And yes, you're absolutely right. It, It illustrated issues that we knew about climate change and how we've treated our planet, about generational poverty and geographic segregation of all these sort of issues that have animated um, our fights for justice for generations. And at the heart of it, no one was nervous about disappointing Black people. And so for us at Color of Change, beyond the policies, beyond the research papers, beyond the sort of narratives that we want to build, when institutions are not nervous about disappointing your communities, then anything and everything can happen. And so what we try to do every day is build power, build power to change the rules. Sometimes those rules are written. Sometimes those rules are unwritten. But it is always about making decision makers recognize that they've got to do something or else they will pay consequences. And right now, that seems like an important lesson. And it also seems like a tall order to um, make the current administration in power worried about disappointing us, right? When it seems like they aren't worried about disappointing anyone or facts or what have you. Um, And as you look at all of the threats that we are all facing, whether it's the rollback of all the climate progress we've made, threats to voting rights, uh, white supremacists in the Oval Office, um, how do you think we need to operate differently than maybe we would have under a Clinton administration? You know, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. You know, there's like 
a lot of, lot of thinking we've been doing around this. And I think first, understanding the threat is really key. You know, Barack Obama was a change candidate and Donald Trump is a change the rules candidate. And that's important, right? And so I, I really want your listeners to sort of understand the difference around change the rules because I think it's important because it means that they're trying to change all the structures and conventions by which change happens and the rules by which we we try to move things. So um, judicial rulings might not be implemented, sort of the ways in which we believed you know, information that comes from the federal government to be true or not true. That's sort of out the window in many ways. All the sort of conventions, you know, I I, I always say that, you know, we may not have agreed with the politics of a EPA director or a housing and urban development secretary and past administrations, but we knew they knew something about the environment and housing and urban development. We knew <laughs> they knew something about those things. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's what changing the rules. And so what we're really clear about is that we can't policy our way out of this. We can't legal our way out of this. And we can't nonprofit executive direct our way out of this. Oh, no. Yes. Say it isn't so, Rashad. Say it isn't so. Those <laughs> sort of my, like that was my policy. Plan. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so then what do we do? What do we do is I think we build the framework that really concentrates on fighting and winning. From a fighter's perspective, and that sort of making making institutions nervous about disappointing us, that really goes to challenging enablers. So, right, not asking Donald Trump for anything, not thinking that the protest out in front of the White House is going like, to make him nervous. But what we've got to do is we've got to make life challenging for anyone that's given Donald Trump money. We've got to make life challenging for corporations that want to play, have one foot inside the White House and one foot inside of our communities. We've got to make things challenging for politicians that want to come home and and after voting for things that put our communities in harm's way. That is about making people make a choice in this moment, that there are no sidelines and that enablers have to pay a price. And then we also have to win. And, you know, the work that you have led has been so inspiring for years at the local level. Um, The hundreds of plants that have um, never seen the light of day and the hundreds of plants that have been shut down are an example of winning real-world victories for everyday people. People need to win. And we need to be able to go back to our people and to be able to say that, you know, we, we you may not like what's been happening at the federal level, but here's what we've been doing. You may not even like us on the left, but here's what we've been doing. Otherwise, we risk being a B a beeline in the sort of Trump story. People could come to hate Trump but not love us instead. We end up becoming the... Um, you know, the the team that plays the Harlem Globetrotters, but not the actual <laughs> Harlem Globetrotters. What were they, what were they called? The no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly that I can't yeah, even remember the people name. People <laughs> don't remember the team that played the Harlem Globetrotters. Um, and, and so if we are going to be the subplot or the beeline in this story, that is not, um, that's not winning. That's, that is such a good point. And uh, I think another... Another piece of the work we have to do going forward is to um, get out of our lanes, so to speak. And I think there are still people out there who think, well, why should the Sierra Club or the climate movement care about racial justice or care about um, 
uh, about immigration reform. And I think that, uh, that if we aren't looking at it in a new way in this post Trump world, um, we're, we're all going down together. And so I just love to hear, hear you talk more about, about that. Well, you know, we've tried it the other way, right? I mean, like, <laughs> and it's worked out splendidly, oh, right? Beautifully, um, beautifully. Yeah. So, you know, what, what, I'm, what I often think about is, like, if um, Hillary Clinton had won, many of us would have went back into our sort of silos, into our institutions, into our movements. And we would have fought for the things that we care about. We would have fought to make sure, you know, who's on the 100-day agenda, who's getting their... Um, their executive orders on the agenda. You know, no one that I know right now wants their uh, anything on the 100 day agenda now. Which no, is, please, exactly. anything but that. It's like stay away. <laughs> but what I'll say is that we would have been fighting for that. Now, because of this election, we're all forced to reckon with um, what will it take to take back this country, right? To take back um, leadership. And and that is a new type of power building, a new type of organizing. And it's about power because this is not about the 16-point policy plan that's um, aligned with the research paper that explains your issue so well that people on Capitol Hill are going to fall over themselves <laughs> to pass your piece of legislation. Yep. That's actually not where we're at. And so... Just by knowing that and recognizing that this is about having the right level of people power that forces the decision makers to have to do what we want. And if they don't, to be able to get new decision makers in. And that is not just about the argument. It's not about our policy papers. It's not about, it is about um, narrative and brand, but it's not about narrative and brand in terms of the words that we use. It's about narrative and brand in terms of the things that we do, not words, but action. So you have, um, speaking of narrative and brand, you have led some incredible campaigns that resulted in over a hundred corporations leaving the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC, which for those who don't know is a right-wing outfit that is sort of churns out blueprint, uh, very regressive of state legislation on everything from the environment to criminal justice to you name it. Uh, you got a hundred organiza- uh, companies to leave ALEC. You also got a lot of companies to pull out their sponsorship from the Republican National Convention when Donald Trump was chosen as the candidate. Um, what are the lessons from that about the stories we're telling about the 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 branding, I guess, for lack of a better word, of how we position ourselves in this new era? You know, we've, we have this model of respond, build, pivot, and scale. So responding to moments around the world, around us, right? And so- And in, there's so many to respond and so to many right to respond. now. But, but building energy, helping to educate, bring allies on, build energy that, that, that kind of pushes for change. And then finding that systemic pivot, that pivot that if we can sort of pull something back, not always deeply systemic, but always about creating lasting change or a new narrative, about changing the rules. And when the Alex situation, right, we were going to, you know, we were watching the um, voter ID, discriminatory voter ID laws pop up all around the country. And we were trying to figure out what to do about them. There was no theory of change of launching campaigns to stop them because in many of the states where they were passed, um, 
you know, they were passed by Tea Party legislatures and and governors had signed them. And we had no that we would say, please don't suppress black people's votes. And they would say, well, that's what we were trying to do. So <laughs> we're glad that we're all on the same page. Good luck. And so we realized that Alec was behind these laws, that 98% of Alec's money came from corporations. Corporations who came to black communities every day and said, buy our products or use our services were behind this institution that was pushing these laws. And so we launched a campaign that said, stop corporate funded voter suppression. And we got 100,000 of our members to sign the petition. And while we were doing that and not going after the corporations yet publicly, just talking about what Alec and the corporations were doing, we were communicating behind the scenes with the corporations. And we were going back and forth with them, trying to educate them and push them to remove, to move behind the scenes. And corporations would get on the phone with us and they would say, we give a little to the left and we give a little to the right. And we're like, that is great, but there is not two sides to black people voting. (laughs) And so, you know, we would go back well and forth said. and it was, and it was always interesting by the last, by the last meeting with them, they would get their senior level black person on the phone with me and we would go, I would talk about voting with my grandfather. They would talk about voting with their grandfather. We'd get off the phone. But then while we were running that campaign, the tragedy in Sanford to Trayvon Martin happened. And our organization responded. We were mobilizing our members every single day to respond for justice for Trayvon. We were supporting some of the hoodie rallies. We were demanding justice for the justice for Trayvon at the Justice Department. We were doing all sorts of wor- work to fight some of the ways that the media was portraying Trayvon and his family. And we were doing our best to build the type of movement that was forcing justice for Trayvon, but also building a larger narrative around vigilantes, the criminal justice system, and the Stand Your Ground Law. And then we found out that the Stand Your Ground Law was an ALEC law, written by Walmart, the largest seller of guns, and passed in states around the country, written by Alec, and we were outraged. And we gave the first corporation 48 hours to leave. Um, we decided it was time to pivot. And we, 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 had, we were tired of talking behind the scenes of these corporations. We gave them a landing page with their logo on it, letting them know that we would um, be going out in 40 hours to our members and the public, and they didn't leave. Um, Alec. Wow. Nope. So they left. They, they, they stayed, they stayed in Alec. Wow. And so 40 hours passed and we started communicating with our members and started mm-hmm. having our members make phone calls. We started sending, um, the phone numbers to a thousand members every half, every, every half an hour. And with, um, four and a half hours in, Alec called us and said, we've heard from your members. Please stop having them call us. Wow. Um, we are leaving Alec. And over the course of the next several weeks, we pivoted, we mobilized our members to show up to shareholders meetings, to um, take over social media, to run radio ads um, near corporate headquarters, to engage the employees of certain corporations. And not only did over 100 corporations leave Alec in the end, we left them with an over $1.5 million budget shortfall. We forced them to end the committees that were working on Stand Your Ground and discriminatory voter ID. And we also um, forced them uh, to close down their swanky D.C. office and move to smaller digs in Virginia, which is kind of <laughs> well, nice. And I, I expect that listeners uh, probably have no idea that Alec is also behind a huge amount of the anti-clean energy legislation that's coming into state legislatures, a huge amount of the anti 
sort of anti-climate state legislation. And um, I think for anybody who does feel like we should stay in our lanes or stay in our silos, it is, it is ignoring the reality that there's this interwoven network of very powerful folks who, um, who sort of all of our, all of our fates are intertwined in, in fighting their agenda because it's, you know, it's lining the pockets of these big corporations at the expense of regular folks, uh, often at the expense of people of color and low income folks. And we can't, we can't win alone, mm-hmm. you know. Our opponents have figured out and know quite clearly, quite clearly that they've got to work together across movement and issue to beat us. And they and the right has figured out a framework um, that knits together multiple issues and they've built organizations. And then we go and fight them individually. Um, <laughs> they've built um, a framework through Alec, through the Heritage Foundation, through um, all of their groups that have words like prosperity attached to them and and freedom uh, that are all focused on destroying our people and our planet. And if we don't find a way to build the type of collective energy and power that protects our people and our planet, um, then we'll lose. And having Trump in the White House is, is definitely putting into very sharp focus the need to build that collective power. Um, if you could give some advice to the climate movement about how we could do that better, uh, which tends to be largely white and typically more well-off and uh, sometimes a little clueless about uh, racial justice and the, the connections outside of our own silo, what would some of that advice be? Well, I think oftentimes people are trying to figure out how do I get people to my thing? Um, how do that I is get, so true. <laughs> how do I get more people to come to my thing? If I can just diversify my thing, that will be better um, than trying to figure out what do other people need and how that can be an opening for us to have a shared um, relationship. And so President Obama, who's probably one of the best presidents we've had, if not the best president we've had on climate. Um, he came at the right time, supported by the right advocates, yep. but did, but was probably by far the best. I'm down with best. Um, we'll do best. And so in Dreams from My Father, his autobiography, he tells this really interesting story about um, when he lit, when he was going to Columbia and he was living up in Harlem, that he worked for um, NIPER. And this is not to, to attack any organization. New York Public Interest Research yes. Group, for those who are not familiar with the acronym. Absolutely. An environmental group. An environmental group that does amazing work. Um, and he was sent into um, Harlem to um, knock on Black people's doors and get them to care about recycling. Um, and this was in the 80s. And one could imagine that in Harlem in the 80s, Black people had a lot of things to worry about. Probably recycling was at the top of the list, don't you think? Absolutely. Like number one, like, like people are like, people are like, is it pa- paper here? Number two, plastic. plastic. Can I put yes. the number five in with the number uh-huh. four? Yeah. And he actually says in his book in sort of a very dismissive way that like almost like dismisses the job and dismisses what he had to do. And this comes from the best president that we've had on this issue. Um, and so it's an example of what could have long-term power building looked like in, in a place like Harlem um, 
if the ladder of engagement looked different. Um, and if the ladder of engagement didn't start off with how do I get people to my thing, but how do I get into their thing? And how do I leverage, not leverage, but how do I see people as an opening to protect the planet? And I think that that, um, in terms of my advice, um, that would be my advice for anyone trying to engage any movement or community outside of their own, uh, is that you've got to first help people get what they need before you get what you need. I think that's a great place to leave it. Rashad, thank you for all your leadership and your courage and your hard work. And it's been an honor to have you on the show. It's great to be with you. All right, that just about does it for us. Marianne and I want to thank you guys so much for listening. And huge thanks to our guest, Rashad Robinson. This episode was produced by the splendid Zach Mack, who does recycle like a champ, but he has not started composting yet. It's important, Zach, you need to get on that. (laughs) Subscribe to us on iTunes, and please also leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps us get the word out. So y'all, we love that so many of you are listening. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, um, and we hope you will subscribe and tell your friends. We're going to be posting all episodes, information, Uh, on our Twitter page, which is at NPLH podcast. So be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or have questions, comments, suggestions, or would like to be part of our show by reading a dinner party climate fact for an upcoming episode, tweet at us. Again, we're at NPLH podcast. We also want to thank the band River Wireless for our theme music. And we want to remind you, there's no place like home. No place like home. 